0: This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. It's Black History Month, and this year, more than ever, telling the truth about black history to American kids has become a revolutionary act.
1: But for attorney and father, Bakari Sellers, it's a necessary one. In the pages of the book, you know, we we had images of individuals throughout our history where you, as a parent, could tell them what Muhammad Ali did, what... Mary McLeod Bethune did, what Stacey Abrams or Kamala, what Dr. King did.
0: Bakari Sellers on his new children's book, Who Are Your People? Coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. During Black History Month, schools often trot out the same ragged posters of a handful of African-American heroes and sanitized versions of their lives and experiences. That's why so many black parents feel the need to educate our children about their history on their own. It's a tradition that feels even more urgent as honest academic lessons about racism are under threat. It's something that attorney Bakari Sellers understands too well. As a political commentator on CNN, he's a keen observer of how race and teaching the truth about racism has come under partisan attack. And as a dad, he's working to ensure that his children understand their history. That was the motivation behind his new children's book, Who Are Your People? And Bakari Sellers joins us now. Welcome to a word. Man, what's going on? What made you move from like a serious autobiography, like My Vanishing Country, which was also a bestseller. I love that book to writing a children's book. I mean that, that's a a real change. So what inspired that kind of change and the kind of content you want to put out there?
1: I mean that's a really good question. Most people don't really pay attention to the swap in genres, although I'll be doubling back to the nonfiction adult Book coming out after this election cycle um, at the beginning at the top of next year. It's weird though because writing children's books is so hard to break into that industry. And I literally had to write a New York Times best selling book to get the opportunity to write a children's book. And you know, I wanted to write a book because I have twins who are three. But I wanted to write a book that met the moment. And you know, when you're having these conversations about race, when you have the ability to have a captive audience like. Uh, your nighttime read. Uh, you know, for me, it was pretty cool to be able to not only illustrate this book in the image and likeness of Sadie and Stokely, but also give kids who look like them the ability to see themselves in the pictures and illustrations and learn things from the words. Now, if you really want to go deep in it, what's been driving me crazy my entire adult life. Has been the fact that the results of the Clark Dahl experiment from the 40s used in Brown versus the Board of Education in 5455 haven't changed much due to the lack of representation we see. And so scholarly and sociologically, you want to do everything you can to change the world and leave it better than the one you inherited. And so I try to flip that on his head, even if just a little bit.
0: And for those who, who may not understand, this was an experiment done in the 1950s where black children were basically shown white dolls and black dolls. And they all thought the black dolls were ugly. They all thought the black dolls were bad because the images that they had seen in children's books and, and entertainment and toys were always black as evil, black as ugly, black as stupid. And I also want to add this. So I, I, thought, I thought it was a very interesting title. When I campaigned right after college in South Carolina, and I thought I was so smart and educated, I had my little UVA degree and I was running Clementa Penke's campaign in the Low country of South Carolina. And I go to the door and I had all these political science questions ready. And this lady didn't care about any of my survey questions. The first thing she asked me, who's kin are you?
1: That's right. Who are your people? Who's kin are you? You know, it's it's an endearing question. It's traveled with us through the the transatlantic slave trade. It's been with us for a long period of time. And it's how we figure out what person we're dealing with. You know, who are your people? I mean, did they go to church? Were they hardworking people? Did your daddy used to steal? Like, who are we dealing with? When my daughter, who's 16, when her boyfriend came in, I found myself asking him the same question like, hey, man, who are your people? Tell me about your parents tell me where you come from. And, you know, I think there are a lot of communities that have something similar. But for us, understanding who our people are. And yeah, I titled it because we wanted to go back and show children in particular what type of people they come from, what type of stock they come from. But who are your people is just such a question, particularly in the South, that's ingrained in us.
0: We're going to take a short break and we come back with author and political commentator Bakari Sellers. We'll be talking about the teaching of race in his brand new children's book, Who Are Your People? This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with author Bakari Sellers about his new children's book, Who Are Your People? So your people, this is the thing. I mean, you know, you have two daughters and your son. They have some pretty incredible people, not just their dad, but I mean, your father was involved in the Orangeburg Massacre. What's interesting is when you talk about a children's book that's talking about our people and our history, there's so much violence that has defined the lives of black folks. How do you share that with kids in a way that's not going to terrify them or just be above and beyond them? I mean, their notions that at three, four or five years old are safety and comfort. The harshest thing they may ever experience is falling off the couch, reaching for a cookie. So how do you explain to them? Hey, your
1: grandfather got shot. Uh, these great leaders got shot. How do you how do you do that part for a kid's book? Well, you don't you don't start there first because of the trauma, but you also speak your truth to power. And in the pages of the book, you know, we we had images of individuals throughout our history where you as a parent could tell them what uh, Muhammad Ali did, what Mary McLeod Bethune did, what um, Stacey Abrams or Kamala, what Dr. King did. Then you see some of the images that are, you know, a little bit more vivid, like there is a black man standing in a cotton field. Um, and you can see the angst and anguish. There's a black woman in that same cotton field kind of leaning over with that kind of back-breaking, doing that back-breaking labor. And then there's an image on the book that I really like that a lot of people are not even really aware that exists per se or, or know what it is, but it's an image from February 1st, 1960 at the Woolworths lunch counter. And we were very conscious about putting that in. That was the start of The civil rights movement. And, you know, for this book, it's not only for four to eight year olds to kind of see the images and understand. And I think, you know, we talk about the fact that, you know, there are a lot of our ancestors, and this is the way we use the language. Our ancestors had to take a seat so that you could stand, right? And we built those images and we use that language so that they understand that people had to make a sacrifice. Now, You know, that's all you need to say at this point. You know, they had to give something, they had to sacrifice something, and then as they get older, you can explain what that what they gave. I mean, some people gave what Abraham Lincoln called the last full measure of devotion, right? That is, some people sacrificed, uh, you know, their freedom. But you can explain that later. They just need to know that there something was given and a price was paid, and we attempt to do that through the words and the imagery of Reggie Brown, and I think we I think we were successful.
0: You know, Bakari, so, like, the teaching of black history has become this huge political football. You got Florida and DeSantis passing new laws that so you can't teach anything that makes white people uncomfortable.
1: That's what we've been fighting for, man. I want white folk to be comfortable around me. Yeah, that's, that is – my life is complete. Right. As long as we have white folk comfortability, I am good.
0: That's the thing. It's like – I mean, well, you know, the larger question, of course, is that white people being uncomfortable leads to literal changes in law. But, like, when you have a book like Who Are Your People – what would you do if that was in a local elementary school in Connecticut or Ohio, or whatever, and some critical race theory explosion happened because of your book? Like, what would you say? The CNN cameras are in your face. Bakari Sellers, parents are protesting. Who are your people? What would your reaction to that be?
1: I'd giggle. I'd have an uncontrollable giggle. You know, I'm decently, you know, sometimes too witty for my own good. And I, I would, you know, I don't know. I mean, I would be like, it has pictures. I mean, I don't know. I put pictures in the book form. There are people who are upset about this book. We it some criticism. Apparently, there's images in the book of two boys holding hands and dancing in the background. It's like, I can't deal with your homophobia. That's on you, my brother. There are people who think that it's too young to be teaching uh, For The aid is too young to be teaching about slavery or the sit-in movement or whatever it may be. And we're not necessarily doing that. We're just talking to people about the sacrifice and the, the price that was paid and who your people are. But this discussion we're having right now, not just about who are your people, but um, everything in between children's books all the way to a very comprehensive 1619 is decently infantile. Because, you know, what I would ask DeSantis on down is, do you even know what critical race theory is? I mean, we're not even really this book ain't that. You know, there are certain elements of 1619 that may be considered, but I don't even really consider that critical race theory, understanding what what critical race theory truly is. So, I mean, this this shows you just the level of our political discourse. And that's probably a larger discussion for a different day with alcohol flowing.
0: We're going to take another short break when we come back more with Bakari Sellers about his new book, Who Are Your People? This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with author and political commentator Bakari Sellers about his new book, Who Are Your People? It is out now. One of the things that really makes you unique is that you're still in the game. You still practice as a lawyer. You still represent people. And one of the cases that that really struck me and caught the nation last year uh, was the case of Andrew Brown Jr. in North Carolina. If you could just tell our audience a little bit about your involvement in that case and where it is now because I think I think one of the things that really distinguishes you is that a lot of people do commentary on TV and they become increasingly divorced from the events on the ground you're still involved in events on the ground.
1: Yeah, so I have to be very cautious about how I discuss this case because I don't want to make any extrajudicial comments that would get me popped on the hand by the judge. Um, However, Andrew Brown is a case that, of course, captivated the nation because it was a a black man who was shot and killed by uh, the Pasquotank County Sheriff's Department. It was a few sheriff's departments working together to execute a drug warrant. Now, if you back up and just look at the long list of these, quote unquote, civil rights cases that I do, that Ben uh, Lee Merritt. Chris Stewart, Harry Daniels, you know, there are some of us who do this type of work across the country. It is an arm of our work that we wish we did not have. I have cases from Colorado, Fort Lauderdale, uh, North Carolina, Hampton, Virginia, Mm -hmm. uh, of course, South Carolina, all across the country that are exhausting. Uh, Legally, they're, they're very difficult cases because one, you have law enforcement, and this is across the board. I'm not speaking to Andrew Brown in particular, but across the board, law enforcement usually gets the benefit of the doubt, right? Um, two, your best witness is dead, so it's a difficult proposition, right? Your best witness is dead, and three, you know, it's it's a case that is not easy or cheap or quick, and so a lot of firms don't have the ability to do it. For me. Um, you know, I my dad was represented in his first one of his first trials by Johnny Cochran. I loved uh, the work of Thurgood Marshall, but I will tell you probably the greatest influences on my life were Waits Waring, White Judge out of Charleston, uh, who uh, did uh, Briggs E. Elliott, which was one of the first cases in the landmark collection of cases known as Brown v. Board, and Matthew Perry, legendary jurist who... Uh, you know, didn't shy away from these tough and difficult cases. Now, what's going to happen in the Andrew Brown case? We're in discovery right now. Um, We're hopeful that we get a, you know, we can move quickly to to bring this family some justice. What that looks like, I don't know. But we're going to put everything we have into this case because Andrew Brown should be alive today. The issue of police violence and police brutality,
0: it was to me, my theory of the case, which is one of those overused phrase in, in current media, is that's what galvanized a lot of people in 2020. It got black people, white people, brown people, tan people, folks marching during a pandemic, and a lot of that energy turned into the voting booth in 2020, helped Joe Biden become president of the United States. Biden is now facing really, really bad numbers. Now let's back up to
1: the framing of the question.
0: Okay. <laughs> I do. I knew I was going to get this from you. All right, here we go. I,
1: I, I hadn't <laughs> no, even no, gotten to it, a, but okay, give, it to, me, no, give let's, it to me. Let's back up, because... And this is a deeper conversation that I didn't want to let pass because I love having, I could have this conversation with you. We have to be very clear with folk that what we've seen recently has been accountability and not justice. And you started off uh, earlier on in the first segment, I believe, because this podcast has segments, which is completely highfalutin. I ain't need no podcast had segments. But you started off in the first segment with a really, really good antidote about the the violence that is portrayed against black folk, And I would take it one step further and say that every ounce of political change leading into your question, every ounce of political change we've ever had has been because of black blood that flowed through the streets. Whether or not it's the Civil Rights Act or Voting Rights Act of 64, 65, they don't happen without Emmett Pettus Bridge, they don't happen without Emmett, they don't happen without that violence. 68, uh, Fair Housing Act doesn't happen without the assassination of King, Confederate flag in South Carolina doesn't happen without Mother Emanuel. You know, you you get to the election of Joe Biden doesn't happen without the murder of George Floyd. So when you're looking at all of these things, but then you have to call it what it is. This it wasn't justice. What we saw, it was accountability. And then ask yourself, how did that happen? And as you were going through it, I think it's you have to be deliberate in saying that it took. A knee to the back of a neck of a black man on the ground, bellowing out for his mother for over nine minutes. A 16, 17-year-old black girl having the audacity and courage to videotape it. Us being in a pandemic, so we didn't have a choice but to sit there and watch it on repeat. Because I honestly believe if we weren't in a pandemic, it wouldn't have gotten that much attention. No, no, it would not have. Mm -mm. And then it took a worldwide protest for For us to get that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to get that level of accountability. So I, you, I think you have to literally frame it as such to then get to your question, because I think that people oftentimes say, well, you had justice, right? And the justice happened because of George Floyd dying. And then you had this. And, and that, that devalues everything that black folk had to put into it in order for us to get the outcome that we saw.
0: I thank you. And I completely agree with that because that was part of my feeling at the time that I was like, it took global freaking protests for this, you know, and there's dozens and dozens of other cases like this that we'll never hear about because they don't get this level of protest because there wasn't the camera there because we weren't trapped at home uh, watching TV all day. I wanted to bring this to just this idea quickly of where the president currently is with black voters. You know, his poll numbers have dropped. I mean, his black approval rating is at 58 percent, which is really low for a Democratic president. If you're sitting there in a meeting and I know you're one of those important people, so maybe you are in these meetings, but because you're sitting here Not anymore, they don't they don't invite me anymore. But <laughs> You're sitting here. You're sitting across from Joe Biden and that's a separate conversation than Vice President Harris. But you're sitting across from Joe Biden. What would you advise him right now that he needs to do? to lift
1: his flagging poll numbers with black folks before these midterms this fall? There are a few things, and I think one is more 50,000-foot view that I think he needs to talk to black communicators and messengers, people who get paid to do this type of work. But I would say that there is a disconnect between the pain that black folk are feeling and the understanding of this White House. Because this White House wants to sell you economic numbers which are stellar, but they do not understand that the reason that we're out here robbing folk, the theme has changed now in the streets. Like you don't have to be rich to get got. You just have to have more than I have. Right. So that's one um, Two, inflation is very real. I tell the story about my daddy all the time, who was mad that Piggly Wiggly, the price of flounder and whiting had gone up like a dollar a pound, two dollars. Like that's a very real thing. You know, people now where they used to have forty five dollar bills are having sixty five dollar grocery bills. And that is the disconnect um, that you have in understanding the pain. And you—you you know it's exhausting for Black folk because what community was ravaged the most, both economically and from a public health perspective during this pandemic? Our community, right? Then you go out and you see the images of Black bodies being Ahmad, Brianna, George. You go out in the streets, you protest, you vote, you organize, you do everything you can Even in Georgia, you overcome to cast the ballot multiple times, right? And then all you want are things like, we didn't vote for you necessarily for a transportation bill. It's great. We're very happy you put money in our pockets. But many people wanted to see concrete action on criminal justice reform. Many people wanted to, we see what happened in Georgia. They wanted voting rights. You know, yeah, we want we want black judges. You've done a great job. But these tangible these tangible things that many people voted for you for either. And the, the first thing was you put them on the back burner, your first mistake, because you wanted to pass transportation, you wanted to pass COVID relief, and then you wanted to pass Build Back Better. So all of a sudden, voting rights had to come behind all of this, which makes no sense. Second, you didn't have any sense of urgency. So now how do you repair that? People always are like, well, y'all don't have no plan. I do. You either you two things. One, you need to empower your Department of Justice to go out and take proactive steps, both in these states that are passing regressive voting rights laws and on the criminal justice front. That's one. Um, And two, you need to take executive action and you have to do these things to show people that you're fighting whether or not the executive action flies. We'll see. But at least fight for us like we fought for you.
0: And I I agree with you and I have had this sort of discussion sort of offline before. I think you make a key point. Even if you can't accomplish all of your tangible goals, at least some symbolic wins, because symbolically all black folk are seeing is that this stuff hasn't been done and folks are getting uh, whipped by INS agents at the border. Uh, I got to ask this real quick. Forgot cause about, I can't...
1: forgot about that.
0: Exactly. Oh, oh, that won't be forgotten about in the midterms. There's going to be images is going to be floating around social media. I can't have you on without asking this question. Everyone, of course, has to ask this question. You are from South Carolina. You have run for office before. You are now, you got everything from best-selling books to TV and streaming, everything else you're doing. Do you have any more politics in your future?
1: I mean, I know you're still young, man, so. For me, I think, you know, I'm honest with myself. I love being able to take care of my family. I think that there is an ability to do well and do good. And I think there's nothing wrong with doing well and doing good. You know, I've always wanted to run for the United States Congress, the 6th Congressional District, which is occupied by our great congressman, Jim Clyburn. The funny part is Jim is 81. And if we use uh, South Carolina politics as our standard, he has about 19 more years of service.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: actually pretty much on point. Yeah, yeah. Hell, which, which time I'll be fifty six? It's a. It's funny how those things change. Uh, each day that goes by, my appetite for going to the United States Congress it it is not as 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 robust as it once was. Simply because, imagine going in and being behind in seniority the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates or Lauren Boebert or Madison Cawthorn. Oh, that's the one I was thinking about. I mean, like that. That is just. And, you know, their inability, um, Dems and Republicans, to deliver for the American people makes you think twice. But then again, you have to remain hopeful and you have to think that you could be a change agent and go up there and work with the Hakeem Jeffries, that you could go up there and work with uh, the Amy Klobuchar's of the world or the Raphael Warnock of the world. Shout out to those two who have been. I want this administration to fight like Amy and Raphael are fighting for us. and. That's the decision in question. And, you know, we'll make that as a family. If the election were were to be today, would I run? The answer is probably yes. But, you know, I don't know what happens in two to three years. Bakari Sellers is a political commentator, attorney
0: and author. His new children's book, Who Are Your People?, is out now. Bakari, thanks so much for joining me on the
1: show, man. Man, I love it. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, shout out to everybody over there. And uh, this, was, this was fun. We got to do them all.
0: And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Jasmine Ellis. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word.